Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today, we are going to pay tribute to Little Richard, one of the most important people in the history of rock and roll. He called himself the architect of rock and roll, and I don't think he was wrong at all. And we have with us Patrick Doyle and Rob Sheffield and David Brown, and we're going to try to put Richard's legacy in some perspective, if you can put something like that in any perspective. And then later I'm going to play an interview I did with Steve Van Zant of the Eastry Band and solo artist talking uh, in depth about Little Richard, who, in addition to giving him his name, essentially also conducted his wedding. So we have that to look forward to. You've all written interesting stuff about Little Richard. Uh, Rob, you wrote that Little Richard invented the idea of the rock star, which is an idea I deeply agree with. I, I think he invented a lot of the stances and spiritual attitude of rock and roll, but maybe you could uh, elaborate on that a bit. Well, he represented excess and outrage, and everything was all about excitement. It's funny to uh, compare the uh, aggressive, explosive sound of something like Tutti Frutti, where he's leading the percussion on the piano, and how it just doesn't sound like anything even coming out of New Orleans at the time. It was just straight ahead, forward momentum, all uh, flash and noise, and it was just a beautiful thing. Listening to his debut album, Here's Little Richard, there's moments in the past few days when I was like, is this the greatest album ever made, period? <laughs> Not even joking. I mean, when you've got Rip It Up, I think if you've got Rip It Up on an album, it might automatically be the greatest album <laughs> of all time. It's like the energy of, and he did a lot of stuff later that throughout his career that was great, but the energy on that album and the power and the innovation, among many other things. I was thinking, like, David, you wrote his obituary and went through his life. Take us through kind of his early years and just how Little Richard became Little Richard. Uh, sure. Yeah, it's funny. You guys were just talking about the screaming and the sound. And it, is, it was so interesting to go back and hear his earliest records, like around 51. They were these kind of, I would say mild-mannered, but much more conventional kind of jump blues where he wasn't really you know, screaming is so interesting to go back and, and hear that stuff. But, uh, you know, he had one of these tumultuous upbringings. He was one of 12 kids, and he was kind of raised more by his uncles and his father, who was kind of wayward. And he moved in with a, a white family in Macon, which was really interesting. And, and he kind of grew up also in the church and started performing at clubs when he was just like a little kid and changed his name to Little Richard as a performer because people were mispronouncing his last name as uh, Penny Man. And there were a lot of littles back then, little Esther, little Milton, all that. So, you know, he, he's, his, his career was kind of slow building, basically. Like I said, yeah, I mean, he was started making records in 51, which was five, six years before his first album that we were just talking about. And, and he was just kind of finding his voice. And then, you know, it was, this, it was a kind of at this low point in his life when he was washing dishes at a Greyhound bus station in Macon when he just started uh, coming up with these kind of body, kind of like these novelty kind of songs, which, one of which ended up being Tutti Frutti. And he sent the tape in and, and his whole career started rolling. And, you know, for what, about two years, he was just on an incredible roll, kind of really, as Rob said, kind of rewriting the rock and roll rules. And it's so interesting. I talked to John Fogarty about this over the weekend. And in his mind, Little Richard is simply the greatest rock singer of all time. He was absolutely convinced about that. I ran that by Dan Auerbach of the Black Keys. He agreed. And I thought that was so interesting. Those guys, they were even like, yeah, Elvis was great, but Little Richard was the greatest. Well, I think Elvis was, one of the things about Elvis is that he was um, attached to this kind of bel canto idea of singing. You know, he still wanted to, he wanted to be big and operatic. And, you know, yes, he would, 
you know, like his versions of, of like Ready Teddy and other Lil Richard songs are great, but he would never scream again like Little Richard. And I think that, you know, when you hear a, a John Fogarty or anyone trying to, or even in the end by many degrees of influence like Kurt Cobain or whoever, I think Little Richard allowed himself to be unhinged in front of a microphone. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I've been talking with people. I mean, when you think about being a black gay man in the 1950s, to allow that much of yourself out and to be that fearless, like the bravery is just, it's unfathomable to me, truly. You know, and I think that's some of what you were talking about in your piece, Rob. Yeah. It's funny because this, as David was saying, that he recorded for so many years before Tutti Frutti and, and trying to be something he wasn't. You know, he was trying to do straight up jump blues in the mode of Roy Brown or Winoni Harris. And uh, it, it was when he was just goofing off at the session and, and screaming this completely insane anarchic little song of his own that he became really Little Richard. And do we think he really thought that that he would get the words good booty into a song at that point? <laughs> <laughs> Howard Stern was talking about those, that a lot. <laughs> one of those rock and roll songs where the censored version sounds even dirtier, you know? There's no way good booty could sound as dirty as Rudy Tootie, the way he sings it. Or, or, or sure like to ball in, in Good Golly Miss Molly. Like, how did that get on AM radio? He's balling in, in every single song. Like, he's going <laughs> to rip it up and ball tonight. That was the chorus. Yeah. yeah. Was, what is Good was, Golly Miss Molly like to do? <laughs> she sure likes to ball. The thing is, like, it's all there in his scream and in his piano and also in the band. It, it, something about those early records of his is he's working with a very established band, as he was very fond of saying. They played on all the R&B hits in New Orleans at the time. They played on every record that came out of JNM Studios at the time. But he made them do stuff that was way out of their comfort zone. And even you listen to other Earl Palmer recordings from the early 50s, and they don't sound like this. He's everybody in the band. These are seasoned pros. And they're just trying to keep up with, with this raw, rowdy, raucous kid. His yeah, voice, brought, like Brian was saying, that they, like his voice, that overdriven thing he could do, is, like it's like playing a guitar and you turn it all the way up and push it into overdrive. He could do that with his voice such an amazing way. Totally. And what's amazing is how, how accepted, like you were saying, Brian, how kind of out he was, how over the top the music was, how over the top his persona was. You know, and I guess apparently he would put some makeup on to appear like less threatening when playing white clubs, which was quite something. But he had all that up and it was completely accepted and almost normal at the time. And that's what's kind of really revolutionary about. I'm sure there were some people who were upset about him and his look and his music, but it didn't hurt his career. He hurt his own career when he stepped away from it to to go into into the ministry. But I mean, he was on a total role and unstoppable despite all those things we mentioned, which is a remarkable accomplishment. Yeah. Rob, what else, what other boundaries did Little Richard kind of break down? I, little Stephen was talking a lot about just, I mean, you know, obviously gender boundaries, a, a million things. Yeah, gender boundaries, uh, racial boundaries. I mean, as, as has often been pointed out, you know, James Brown began his career as a professional Little Richard inter impersonator. Right. His, uh, his queerness, his blackness, the extreme femininity in his voice, and you know, the way he said it, he was influenced by these, these gospel singers. And the way he sang Lucille, he was just trying to imitate Ruth Brown, you know, which I didn't know until I read that interview that that was what he was trying to do. But of course, it's very, very audible that that's what he's trying to do. And he was someone who just represented excess and just lived it. So he 
had all his hits in a blaze of glory, then boom, he disappears to the church. It's, it's not like somebody like Fats Domino or Jerry Lee Lewis who stayed around having hits till the 60s, or Chuck Berry who made some of his greatest records in the 60s. He was, you know, as another great rock star has said, you know, burning out rather than fading away. And as far as the self-invention that's always, or the self-reinvention that's always been at the core of the sort of rock and roll ideal, he was also a very important example of that. I think of the fact that he was born with like one leg shorter than the other. He felt that he had like a big head with one big eye and one small eye. That's how, that's what he really initially thought of himself as a, as a physical being. But he, by sheer force of will, made himself into the most beautiful man in showbiz. Just by declaring himself that and saying it again and again, he just made, it's a classic, he made himself good looking. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, like he just manifested that into the world. And, you know, and also the, the self-love many, many, many years before, uh, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, Little Richard was in essence saying that whether in interviews or, or in, in songs. I'm just like sort of in, in awe of his spirit. Like, I don't, I don't know how anyone could, you know, on record in the 1950s, he sounded like the freest man alive when that was not the actual circumstances he came from, but that's what he sounded like. Self-invention yeah. is so key to it. And that's why, you know, he's, you know, the godfather of glam rock and punk rock and, and all these other rock and roll styles where making up yourself and a certain level of self-adoration is, is part of the package. Right. Let's talk a bit about his influence because I, I always think it's a mistake in general to reduce some of these earlier figures to just an influence like, oh, you know, you may not enjoy listening to his actual music, but look at all these great white rock stars who, who did stuff like him. It's like, no, I mean, his actual music is one of the greatest things the 20th century gave us in itself, even if no one had been influenced by it or ripped off. That said, I mean, his influences, I would say, almost incalculable. To start out with a less obvious one, it's, it's fascinating to be reminded by Bob Dylan how important Little Richard was to him. And of course, as we all know, in his high school yearbook, his ambition was to join Little Richard, right? I love that. Just join Little Richard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so where do we see that? I mean, again, starting with the least obvious person in some ways, where do we see that influence in Bob Dylan? It's a tough question. But we can hear we can hear in those early Bob Dylan performances that the commitment to the wildness of his voice. That's definitely something he got from Little Richard. In many ways, Bob Dylan's harmonica squeals are his equivalent of like the Little Richard falsetto. You know, <laughs> Fantastic. Like, that like little blast of high pitched noise because he couldn't do that with his voice. You know, that woohoo <laughs> that Little Richard could do. <laughs> he had his harmonica not, to do it for him. Not many yeah, people could do that with the voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, that's true. It's like, it's like he had a distortion pedal in his throat. And, mm -hmm. you know, by the way, the two microphones of the time were perfectly suited to be overloaded by a absolute monster of a voice like Little Richard had. But someone mentioned Paul McCartney. I mean, you know, Paul and Richard have both talked about during that, that tour that Richard did in the UK with the Beatles. Paul would actually sit at the piano with Richard and Richard would help him perfect what he'd already been doing, which is like that high scream. So he didn't just influence him on record. He actually sat down and tutored him, which is an incredibly uh, generous thing to do if you think about it. Um, Absolutely. And, and yeah. you know, that's, that's how Paul successfully impressed John. That was the first thing Paul ever did right in John's eyes that, you know, John was like, okay, he's the one who can do the Little Richard screen. There are all these great scenes in, in the Mark Lewison book about the early days of the Beatles. Paul's whole game was show up at a party with a guitar and sing... Long Tall Sally and like Tutti Frutti. And those were his two party pieces. 
<laughs> a lot of those Beatles songs, like what I'm Down and all those songs, he sounded yeah. to be oh, channeling yeah. Little Richard's right. voice. A hundred percent. It's fascinating to hear him in his 70s stuff, which, you know, happened with a lot of veterans. He's kind of recovering. You know, he does that version of Brown Sugar that's really great. He also does a version of the Midnight Special that seems similar to Credence's version. And he's, try- he's basically out singing John Fogarty on a, on a version of the same song. He sings uh, Born on the Bayou. So he obviously, mm-hmm. he had his ears on Credence, didn't he? he? He heard what John Fogarty was trying to do. Yeah, those are, those are really interesting records that he made in the late 60s and early 70s. They weren't remotely hits, but they, he, he covered a lot of those songs you mentioned, even covered like Three Dog Nights, Joy to the World, you know, attempt to <laughs> kind of have a hit. But it was a really, it was another side of his music came out, a kind of darker, funkier, more soulful sound, you know, that we hadn't heard. Like he really was trying to kind of modernize himself as much as possible with the material and the arrangements. And, you know, it's kind of unfortunate that it didn't kind of hit. And, and I often wondered if that, you know, he seemed like someone who later on would often go on about how he was uh, kind of underappreciated and overlooked. And uh, I wonder if it kind of started in a way with those records, not really connecting in the way that, you know, maybe they should have. I think the way that he, and a lot of people have been commenting on this, the way that he insisted on his own importance I think is a bracing and admirable thing. He just would not be like, <laughs> no one put Richard in a corner, you know, like you could not, uh, he would not let himself be brushed back. He would assert himself in the greatest settings that, you know, in the book, Mystery Train, famously on the Dick Cavett show, it quotes this, uh, this little Richard monologue. And I had always assumed over the years that basically it was totally fictional because it seemed, and my impression is it's a little bit fictionalized, at least based on what I've found. But Let's hear a little bit of Little Richard taking on a critic and a writer whose names don't even matter at this point. They've been talking fustily next to him for a while, and finally he can't take it anymore. And here's what Richard had to say. Can you clear this up in 30 seconds? Then we'll I can clear it up in a second. Okay. <laughs> I don't think that people should care. If I was in a play, I wouldn't care what you write. Uh, it wouldn't make no difference because I wouldn't think that you would know anyway. I think that if God give a person a gift, that he has a gift. I don't think that a man could tell how the beans supposed to be in the pot when they don't even eat beans. You understand that? And so if I was on Broadway and a book writer, now I'm writing a book called He Got What He Wanted, but he lost what he had. I don't care what they say. And you see how I dress? I don't care what they feel. I do what I feel. I don't care what the critics have. They say he's awful. It don't matter because most of them that write are terrible. They're old and outdated. That's the truth. And they, they don't know what's going on, never been on, never been in, can't get out. Shut up! <laughs> Rob, first of all, I'm sure you're familiar with that moment uh, that I'm talking about. And second of all, like just also his persona on the talk show circuit and all of that. What do you, <laughs> what do you make of all that? He, you know, he was good theater. He, he always understood that. He had a great line in one of his Rolling Stone interviews where he said that, you know, the places that he played when he was just starting out, there were no spotlights and no lights. So he had to wear sequins and stuff because everything wow. had to glow and shine. The sparkle had to come strictly from him. And when his career went dark in, in the 70s, he became extremely popular on talk shows. It's weird like how in the public eye he was in the 70s and especially the 80s. He was ubiquitous in the 80s. It's funny to hear people kind of casually talk about him as somehow... Uh, overlooked in the 80s. He was extremely in, in the public eye for somebody who hadn't had a hit since the 50s. He's way more famous than Fats Domino or Jerry Lee Lewis, who had way more hits 
over a much longer period of time. But little Richard, you could always put him on camera and he would be a tornado. And he, he would not stop. And he, he was not a pro. He did not play ball. The, the great part in that, that great quote from the Dick Cavett show is just, you could hear these people are having this incredibly stupid discussion and he just <laughs> waits his moment and then just absolutely nobody else can get a word in and it's really kind of beautiful. But, but I, I wonder if that sort of also hurt him. I mean, you're, Rob's absolutely right about how ubiquitous he was and he was so fun to watch, but, you know, in a way he kind of turned himself into a bit of a, of a caricature, you know, in a way that say Chuck Berry others of you know, his peers at the time didn't during that time, you know, when he was on Baywatch and things like that. Um, I wonder <laughs> if that, that, that hurt him in some way also. It made people take him less seriously as a real rock and roll pioneer and, and someone important and more as just this fun guy you see on TV who had some hits a long time ago. He was much better on Baywatch than Jerry Lee Lewis was on T.J. Hooker. <laughs> we can all agree. We can all agree. He was flash, and that was something that he had represented in the 50s. And he, he represented in the 80s, he was one of the most beloved people in America, despite not having any hits since the 50s. He was someone that you could put into, whether it was you know a fast food commercial or an award show or a talk show or, you know, or Baywatch. And he, was, he would deliver entertainment per minute more than anybody. Quickly, um, I was interviewing his lawyer about about that and asking about those commercials and whether they they hurt his career or not. But he said that Richard saw the value in them and he knew how to make every single one really fun, like Taco Bell or anything. Like he would put a ton of thought into the commercials and <laughs> and like really, you know, only pick the top. If it was like McDonald's or Taco Bell or something, he would only pick the top brands and they saw that as a way to get out to America in a way that he couldn't do it with his music. So it was kind of kind of an interesting way to approach your career. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, fascinating, Patrick. But it's also interesting to you know, go back and see his his appearance at the Grammys in the late 80s, you know, when he's giving out the yes. Best New Artist Award with David Johansson, who was in his Buster Poindexter mode. And, you know, Richard starts riffing about how uh, you know, he should be the best new artist. And it goes off into a, a really amazing, fascinating tangent where he's basically, you know, complaining about, about in a way, his lack of recognition in the industry, which sounds bizarre. And I think all of us here on this call have um, met or spoken with musicians who've groused about how uh, I don't get enough respect in the business or I'm not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, although Richard, of course, was. But I think if anyone had a right <laughs> to make that case about their, their position in the industry, it was Little Richard, because it is kind of, it was remarkable that he had to do those commercials anyway back then, and, and how, um, how he was sort of, as Rob said, also just didn't have hits for like decades. That's true. But I'm glad that he got to do every talk show he did. I'm glad that he recorded the theme song for Casper the Friendly Ghost. I was delighted when they came up on a Spotify playlist, because, you know, I... I I don't want rock and roll heroes to have to sort of like fade away. I want them to like, you know, be on celebrity squares if they want to be, you know what I mean? I think you can make yeah. your great art and then have your fun. And I think, and he did every element that you could possibly do. He did the dropping out to uh, turn to religion. You know, he prefigured every, every possible thing you could do. And I, I, do, I get like when Dylan's, called him his guiding light. I did think about that. Uh, and I did want to say just totally side note about Dylan. I didn't know that when Richard was sick in the eighties, that Dylan sat by his bedside. That's a very little known thing. So there's, there's a, a lot of, a lot of relationships there. 
I think a few of us spoke to him in his last years. It, I interviewed him in the 2000s. Did any, any of the other ones of you uh, speak to him? No. I never did. I, I saw him in concert. I saw one of his last two concerts. Or one of the, it was 2012 in D.C., and it was two and a half hours long. And, but I never spoke to him. I just spoke to his, I, I, doing a sort of last year story and talked to his son and talked to uh, his agent and his lawyer. But, but I never got the chance to talk to him. What was that like? So I was doing an obituary of Billy Preston in uh-huh. the mid-2000s. And Little Richard uh, was a, a huge fan and a friend. And I called him. And he was so sweet and gentle and soft-spoken and completely out of character. You know, he wasn't doing the Little Richard thing. He was very kind and very sad about Billy, very human, you know, like very much like he was a person talking to a person. There was no showbiz thing happening. It, it really stuck with me. And then I, the, the thing I always tell about that call, and I don't, I don't know why it stuck in my head so much, is that he gave me a phone number. He's like, oh, do you have a phone number for whatever, I, Billy's sister or whatever it was? And I was like, no. And he's like, so let me get it. And I hear him like, you know, shuffling through for a long time through a bunch of papers. Uh, and then, and then he, you know, he gets out and, and he like very charmingly read me this phone number at a very, so he's like, you, you got a pen? And I was like, yes, sir. And, he, and he's like, read, he was like, one, seven. And I was like, this is the, and, I, and then finally I said, I said, thank you so much. And I have to say, uh, it's pretty unreal for me to have little Richard reading me off a phone number. And then he laughed and laughed. So I like, he, he kind of popped into character a little bit. Um, but, but so, yeah, that was unforgettable. I'm, I'm glad I, I got a chance to at least uh, have that phone call. And I know our colleague Andy Green did one of his last interviews just a few years back. So, you know, if you had to sum up before we break and then play Little Steven, Rob, if you had to sum up your feelings about Little Richard and what he meant to the world, how would you do so? Not to ask too hard a question. Uh, well, the, the glib answer would be a wop, bop, a loop, a lop, bam, <laughs> boom. But in many ways, everything he had to say to the world was in there. It was, I am somebody being screamed by somebody who had been told all his life that he was nobody. He had been told that by the country at large. He'd been told that in his own home by his own father. He was poor, queer, black kid in the 1950s in Macon, Georgia. And that he was able to summon that scream and a scream that resonated with almost anybody who hears it over the generations, over the miles, all around the world. Uh, what an astounding, astounding achievement. Absolutely. Uh, David or Patrick, do you want to add one more thing? I was talking to his agent, Dick Allen, who this guy is just, he started uh, working for William Morris Agency in uh, 1952. And he's been an agent since 52. And he, so he worked with Richard from the 50s all the way on. And he said that he was the most undisciplined artist that he ever <laughs> that he ever worked with that his shows were either too long or too short everything there was always an issue at the hotel something that like they played it they played a concert in the eight in the 90s and richard liked to have these um religious books handed out to the crowd and someone at the venue said we can't mix religion and music you can't be handing out bibles basically to the audience and richard refused to go on there was always something like that but i said to him why like what, what was that all about um he said, well, that, that was the genius that made him who he was, that it made him be able to play the piano that way he was. So he, he was just had this, ama- he was just uh, unlike anybody else. And I love every single story I hear about him. So I don't know. <laughs> and David, one quick word about him? Well, not, not one word, literally. <laughs> well, you know, I, I just always remember my first real experience seeing him perform, which was in a movie in the 70s. There was a whole rock and roll revival movement in the 70s where they would do these package tours of people like him and Chuck Berry and so forth. And one of them was filmed for a movie called Let the Good Times Roll. And I remember going to a movie theater that with my, my dad took me. 
And, uh, and that was my first, you know, the first time, you know, you really were seeing a lot of these guys on the big screen or, or in any TV exposure like that, at least for, for the subsequent generation of music fan. And I just always remember his performance in that. If anybody can, I don't know if that movie is still readily available, but he was just up there. It was like the fifties all over again. He was, he was sweaty and he was like leaping around and, and, you know, Chuck Berry and Fats Domino and the other guys in that performers in that movie seemed almost tame you know, compared to them, even though the whole movie was the idea of a, a celebration of the founders of this music and how they were still keeping it vibrant. But but the the way that he maintained that energy and took you right back to that time is something uh, just one of those moments in a, in a, in a music movie that I'll, uh, you know, that I'll kind of never forget. Absolutely. And now here's audio from my recent conversation with little Steven Van Zandt about all things Little Richard. And he starts out by talking about how his first real exposure, or at least the way he became a real fan of Little Richard, was actually through the earliest days of oldies radio, which popped up in the early 70s. And, you know, as he points out, some of the quote-unquote oldies they were playing were like five years old. But time was moving somehow faster musically those days. So let's hear what little Stephen had to say. It was incredible education. You know, you got a chance to hear all the 50s and early 60s stuff that you didn't know. And that would, of course, include have included uh, Little Richard, you know. But, you know, and, and then would be a lot of the guys I would meet later when I, when I met Gary U.S. Bonds on that tour and Lloyd Price and the Drifters and Benny King and, and you know, and all those Shirelles and Chiffons and all of them. Um, you know, we suddenly were, we had, a, had a channel uh, you can, you can, where you can listen to that stuff. And it was pretty much... At the end of the 60s, um, you know, we were going from one trend to another every year. Very much a monoculture. Everybody was British Invasion in 64. Everybody was folk rock in 65. You know, country rock in 66. Psychedelic in 67. <laughs> you know, whatever. Blues rock in 68. Hard rock in 69. And the final trend was Southern White Soul, you know, somewhere in that 1970 year. And then it was a, just a complete fragmentation. The fragmentation came right around the same time as the, as the oldie station started. So suddenly there were no more trends, if you will. You know, there was no more evolution of our art form. I mean, that was the end of the Renaissance. Was, you know, I, I know, I, of course, I know that now. I didn't know it then. But that would be the end of the Renaissance period. And so you, you, you naturally drifted to what you had missed. You know, there wasn't anything really new and exciting happening that, that was, to, you know, to in my neighborhood anyway. Uh, <laughs> you know, I wasn't, I wasn't into glam. I wasn't into art rock. I wasn't into progressive rock. You know, I wasn't into singer-songwriter. So, so all of those things that were happening in the early 70s, you know, from singer-songwriter to glam to progressive rock to, you know, glam to, you know, to, you know I, didn't, I wasn't into any of it. So, so I used that time to, to educate myself about what I'd missed, you know, in the 50s and early 60s. So it was extremely important. So was, was that when you really became a Little Richard fan in, in that sort of retrospective? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we started having, like, oldies nights uh, at, at Upstage, you know, mm. we, were, we were hanging out at this club called Upstage. Right. In Asbury Park, and, you know... And that's where we really, you know, learned our craft, you know. And, um, you know, we started having all these nights where we'd play 
some of those 50 songs, you know, which we'd never done. Just for fun, you know, and it was just kind of fun. But it was, um, again, a major part of the education process, which, you know, rock and roll is like anything else, man. You know, you, you, um, you got to educate yourself. You got to learn the craft. And uh, rock is five major crafts you have to learn, you know. And one of them is, is uh, analyzing records and, and learning, you know, what makes what what is this thing that you know you're, you're you're doing for a lifetime your lifetime's work you better learn it you know um and that means going back to the beginning and learning from the masters there's no way around it there's no real shortcuts you know i, I tell people to this day you know they say what, what should i do i'm like go back to the beginning man learn what chuck berry was doing learn what bo diddley was doing learn what little richard was doing and um and then you can start to understand the 60s and you know, and then you can start to you know, then you can understand the seventies, and, and then go from where, from there, wherever you want to go. But uh, but if you want to understand what the essential elements are of what we do, they were invented then. You know, you know, you can go back further than that, of course. You sure. Know, you know, those of us who are crazy fanatics we go all the way back you know we go back to the jungles of africa and the mountains of ireland and the plains of the you know northern african desert you know but but uh, but you know you know but, but certainly starting in the early 50s um you know the modern world as we know it began and it's quite incredible that 70 years later it's still quite relevant yeah, you know, that's, that's uh, pretty amazing, isn't it? When you think about it, you know. Yeah, you can uh, you can put on here's Little Richard, which I just did, uh, and and it's like you know it it's like it was recorded uh, five minutes ago. You know, it hits you like a sledgehammer. Yeah, yeah. The only difference is, it, of course, it sounds better than what would be recorded five minutes ago. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that's the only you know, that's the only giveaway. <laughs> you know, you know? <laughs> no, I mean, if you had to encapsulate, I mean, what was the essence of Little Richard's greatness in, in, in your mind? Well, he, he has several things. I mean, he for me, he embodied the spirit of rock and roll, and by that I mean, I mean, he was a, a bit of a bridge between what came before, which was the big band era and the, and the boogie woogie era and, 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 you know, the blue shouters like, you know, Joe Turner and, you know, and you got Louis Jordan in there and, 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 and you know, a lot of others. And as the economics determined, you know, the big bands became smaller and smaller. We would end up with the rock and roll configuration, which was basically created by Muddy Waters, the first Muddy Waters band. Drums, bass, guitar, piano, and maybe a harmonica player. You know, right? Uh, but Richie was in between. You know, he, he he had a lot of the qualities that we would now know as rock and roll, but but still had like four saxophones playing those riffs. You know, so what made the difference was when he opened his mouth. I mean, out came liberation. You know, mm. you know out came freedom. I mean, he he just had that, that that true spirit of rock and roll that would influence and be an element of everybody who followed, you know? And all, all the pioneers contributed important things. I mean, certainly Elvis Presley popularized the entire, you know, the entire genre. Um, Chuck Berry, you know, brought the lyrics. He was the storyteller. Bo Diddley was the pure sexuality and the beat and 
Jerry Lee Lewis was just some, you know, uh, brought, you know, the, the religious fanaticism <laughs> gone, <laughs> gone, gone, gone wild, you know what I mean? Uh, they all brought something, but, you know, Richard, you know, in addition to his incredible spirit coming through his voice, he also had that flamboyant androgyny, which, again, would become an essential part of rock and roll as far as, you know, it would surface from time to time um, more blatantly than others. I mean, certainly, I think it took a, a major turn uh, towards uh, exposure, if you will, you know, toward, towards influence um, with, with Mick Jagger and his his performance in the, in the film Performance. Right. Uh, I think not only changed Mick himself, but it allowed everybody else to, to, to be uh, androgynous. And that's, I think, where you know, Glam came from and David Bowie and, and Mark Bowen and all the rest. You know, I, I think uh, that movie had a very, very big influence on, on everybody. Uh, and, you know, suddenly, you know, in the early 70s, I mean, you know, David Bowie, Lou Reed, and Biggie Pop, in that famous picture, <laughs> all looking very gay and, and very much like Little Richard, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, and, and I, so I think Richard made it okay. You know, it wasn't, you know, being gay and being in rock and roll, there was no contradiction there, you know? There was no... Um, you know, fear of not being accepted. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if he ever, you know, he, he wasn't, I, you know, I, I don't think he ever became a flag-waving, uh, you know, a gay rights type of individual, but but everybody knew he was gay. And, and, sure. Uh, and I think he made, you know, gay people feel, you know, comfortable with it. I mean, the entire British, the entire British industry was gay. I mean, it was, you know, the, literally, the, everybody running the entire British invasion sure. was gay. I mean, they were so gay. I mean, Andrew Lou Goldham had to pretend he was gay just to fit in. And, you know, and I, 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 did, a whole, I did a whole bit on my radio show about this and uh, uh, the gay executives and, you know, gay, you know, gay entrepreneurs left rock and roll and went to disco. Uh, you know, I said, you know, we, we've never quite recovered since, you know. We've never, we certainly never had the style that we that we needed ever since. But anyway, uh, it was, um, you know, that was all part of, I think, um, his thing. You know, I mean, uh, yeah, that sort of freedom in every way, not not just in in the art, not just in the singing, not just on stage, but in the lifestyle as well. You know, it, it, it just he wrote the book literally. You know. I mean, for me, I mean, it's, it's my religion. So, I mean, he's literally <laughs> God to me. You know? Yeah. And and uh, and he and he and he literally he sort of wrote the Bible, you know, that we all follow to this day. That that sort of, you know, don't you don't need to repress it. You don't need to suppress it. You don't need to you know, follow the rules. You know, you can be yourself. You know, you can, you can be yourself and be proud of it. And and that's built into our art form. Hmm. Because of him. I mean, I, I think about being a black gay man in the in the 1950s and getting on stage, getting in the studio, and being him and being that fearlessly flamboyant. To me, that's like as brave as an astronaut. You know what I mean? It's just like yeah, it's, it's yeah. unfathomable. And the best part was, unlike Chuck Berry, who who, who tragically was bitter, you know, right to the end, you know, uh, and it's such a shame because you carry that around like a like a weight on your on your shoulders your whole life. Richard never had that attitude. I mean, I talked to him about this, you know, and um, you know, Pat Boone 
you know, they, they were all, almost every black artist back then, uh, you know, were having their, their records covered because I know young people find this hard to believe, but, but in fact, in those days, there was black radio and white radio, and you weren't, you know, the white radio was not supposed to play black records, okay? Yeah. I mean, the, the white artists like Pat Boone would take advantage of that and cover a little written song, but then you had the very courageous... Alan Freed's of the world, you know, the white the white DJs who uh, played black music for their white teenage audience, and Alan Freed would be crucified uh, for doing it. Mm. But that would change the world because as soon as the kids heard Little Richard's version, you know, you're not going to enjoy Pat Boone's version nearly as much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> but 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 Richard always had this attitude like, hey man, he turned a lot of kids onto my music. You know, uh, before my records could be played on white radio, which, uh, you know, l luckily, of course, they were, you know, come whatever, 56, 57. But until then, you know, he, he felt like, hey, Pat Boone's my publicist. You know, he's, he's out there, you know, he's out there doing me a favor. I mean, that's how he looked at it. It was, was very um, sophisticated and, and very, I think, very accurate. You know, you know instead mm. of being pissed off the way Chuck was, you know, his whole life. So why, wait a why? Why go through life so pissed off? You know what I mean? I mean, sure. especially if you're Chuck Berry, I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know? Uh, I mean, <laughs> you know, one of the greatest artists in history, you know, and amply rewarded, you know, $10,000 in that, in that guitar case, man, in cash five <laughs> days a week for 50 fucking years. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. I always tell people this because young people assume that all these guys were, you know, poverty stricken like the old bluesmen, and I say, no, not not Chuck, you know, not, not at all. Uh, but but no, no, and, yeah. You know, and I'm and I'm not justifying those early contracts, which were which was stupid, and, and you know, but the guy, you know, everybody was making up the rules as they went, and they shouldn't have done that. They shouldn't have. They shouldn't have had those unfair contracts. They were ridiculous, but. Like I say, you know, uh, who really got ripped off in the end? They made him famous, okay, and now you stay famous for the rest of your life, you know. And, and you know, and they're they're selling their singles at fifty nine cents out of the trunk of the car, and paying payola and you know and everything else. Yeah, you know, they shouldn't have made that kind of a deal with them. But Richard always had the, had the right attitude, which I, you know, which I thought was you know, good for him, good good for his own health, you know. So tell me about the uh, your your later interactions with him, especially like how he came to officiate the wedding and what what that what that was like and, and all of that. This amazing. Well, it was just a thought, you know, because obviously he's my namesake and my mentor, and I thought, well, if I'm gonna get married, you know, um, you know, we might as well make it a rock and roll wedding. And, <laughs> and um, so we just called him, you know, <laughs> and uh, you know, he's like, okay. And it was his first one, first time he ever did it, and uh, that was it, really. You know, he, he uh, you know, kind of improvised it, and uh, there's a film of it somewhere, which I've never been able to find. It's, oh. it's floating around somewhere. Yeah, you know, you get busy and you drift up. You know, you don't really, you don't really see anybody you don't work with. You know, and, and unfortunately, so you know, I didn't see him as often as I could. Um, the last time I talked to Paul McCartney. I said to Paul, I said, you know, Paul, we should get on a plane, go to Nashville and find him, mm. and just and say goodbye, you know, because uh, I'm sure he's going to be, you know, it had been very quiet. I had been inquiring about him, oh, God, all past year, 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's getting quieter and quieter, and you know what I mean? Uh, I can't come to the phone now, you know. So it, it, it felt like, you know, and I knew it was his hip and his legs that had been bothering him now for, for several years. So, you know, it, it just felt like, you know, we're coming near the end here, and, and, and I can't believe the guy who invented rock and roll is still, is still walking around, first of all. You know I mean? It's, it's, it's a miracle that he's right. still, you know. But um, look, in the end, you know, I feel lucky to um, to have been on the planet at the same time as him. You know? <laughs> well, well said. Hey, you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. That was Little Steven on Little Richard, and that is our show for today. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Please subscribe to us as a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. I really do read them all. And as always, stay safe. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.